Welcome to Triple Threat, the podcast with Jamel President, where it's good news and good vibes all the time, baby. When we left Portugal to come play with you and your system, Jamel, it was the best thing for Shane because you, you, you pushed him to do other things outside his box. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Jamel President and on Twitter at President Jamel. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast as I'll be bringing you a new interview every month. Hey, what's up, guys? Coming on deck, we got my good friend Tony Shufo. Spent a lot of time with Tony Shufo down at the College of Charleston uh, doing media relations. Um, not only that, uh, we became good friends. Um, during that time, but uh, Tony Shufo got a really, really good experience with his son, Nick Shufo, that's a student athlete and plays uh, Major League Baseball. So um, just want to bring some of those stories, the College Charleston days, and some of those stories about being a student athlete and how to um, get through the waters of, of being successful. All right, let's get to the interview. Dude, how are you? How you doing, big guy? Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Good to see you, man. Working from home. That's what it's all about. It's all you better about. believe it. I could have <laughs> retired July 1. Why didn't you? Working from home. <laughs> they want to pay me. And it's easier, right? It's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm so... i um, doing it as long as I can. Yes, sir. Hey, you doing but, well? Um, yes, sir. I'm good. I'm good. You know, just... Good. Just trying to um, and to be uh, creative and 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 getting the message out and sticking to what Day Foundation is is that that message board that sound board to the community and parents is about the information. You know, I'm a student athlete activist, so you know information is is crucial when you know kids are trying to make a decision. I'll tell you something funny before we get into it. Yep. Um, I met uh, Jay Christmas um, in the gym the other day. His son's going to Duke. Uh, uh-huh. on the baseball scholarship. And, you know, I mentioned your name. He, he was aware of Nick and yourself. I thought that was awesome. Um, yeah. Um, matter of fact, I'm going to bring him on the show just because I think this f- f- touched some different aspects of the game and life from, you know, coaches, parents, um, players that did it. It's just a wealth of knowledge out there that, you know, that's that parents <clears throat> get. Yeah, what they go through can help people with their experiences. I knew you my guy, but I knew you was a Steelers guy. I like you even more now. That's what's up. Oh, yeah. How did you know I'm a Steelers? Yeah, I'm a big Steelers guy. You just, I saw the cup that you just drunk out of. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I made that. That's what's up. That's what's up. You. So we'll get right into it, man. Um, this is Triple Threat with your male president. With <laughs> good news and good vibes all the time, baby. We got uh, Tony Shufo in the house. Um, and Shufo, before I get into it, I'll tell another quick story. Um, that was really, really funny. Um, you probably remember this. It was my, my freshman year, and um, we was playing in the, in the gym. We, after our game, that's where the media stuff used to be, like on the, right across from the bench, you know what I mean, right, like, right there. And uh, I'm, I, had a, I think I had a pretty good game, and I'm going to the, uh, to the locker room, and you, you pulled me. You're like, hey, look, the news want to talk to you. I'm like, what? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I went. And man, I may have said um and um and yeah. I mean, I had a horrible interview 
and I, I, I came, I came there. So I said, "Shoot, for man, why don't you give me the give me the questions before they ask me questions?" Like I didn't know they would ask me questions. I had to be on point. So I was like, right. "Yo, well, you just tell me what they're gonna say before I answer it." And I was just because I was so uncomfortable with that. Right. Now I can't keep a, a mic out or camera out of my face, and I think that's awesome. Well, it comes with experience, right? Right. Now that you've experienced it so much, can I tell a quick story about you? Sure, sure. With the media? Yeah. Uh, this goes back to 1999. And okay. you remember we were a nationally ranked team, yep. number 16 in the country. We had a tough road trip where we had to go to Chattanooga and East mm -hmm. Tennessee State. We were 13-0, and trying to become the first team in Southern Conference history to be 16-0. and wow. But we had two very difficult road games and then the final home game against Furman. And we went to Chattanooga, which was, you know, obviously always a chore – they sold out the roundhouse that night of almost 11,000. Yep. We had the national media following us. And of course you hit two free throws late to secure a 58, 53 victory, which you always did. You know, you always came through. Yes, sir. You hit the two big free throws. And then uh, I remember after the game, uh, before I get to your point, I, I spoke to John after the game, John Cress, and I said, coach, good news is you won. Bad news is East Tennessee just beat Davidson by 12. Right. And uh, we were going to ETSU next. Well, we go to ETSU, they had a hostile crowd, and they were giving y'all the business, the fans were. And uh, it, was a, it was kind of a nerve-wracking game because it was a very good East Tennessee State team. And uh, you guys went in and took care of business and won 74-55. Wow. Um, and after the game, which we normally didn't do, and you recalled your freshman year, we did the interviews <laughs> courtside. Well, because of the national media following, there was probably – 20 to 30 media following us. We had to set up a press conference in a classroom right. at East Tennessee. And you were at the podium with a couple of other players. And I think your reaction, and I always tell people this, two things about the teams then and any mid-major team now, really. Um, and I always use this as one of the examples, um, how good the program was and how it was perceived. Right. You were asked the question, and I'm going to ask it and see if you remember it. Someone asked you from the media, how good is this team and how far can you go? Do you remember that question? You may I not. Told, I told him we go remember. I said we go win the national championship. Absolutely. And that's what I tell people. I said there are two things I wanted to, I, I want to give examples. Number one was Jamel's president's reaction to the question with a very straight face, very serious face. You looked at him and said, uh, we're good enough. We want to win the national championship. And what I tell people is it's not your reaction so much. It was the reaction of everyone in the room. That's correct. Nobody mm -hmm. snickered. Nobody right. went, the kids lost it. Is he right. crazy? They're the College of Charleston. That's how respected this team was at that point. When you made that comment, everybody went, yeah, no doubt. That's right. the way it is. And the other part of that, what I tell people the differences are, and you remember this, when we lost on the road, Fans stormed the court. They did it at the <laughs> Citadel. They did it at FIU. Right. They did it at Georgia Southern. I mean, there right. weren't many road losses, but when we did lose, their fans stormed the court. That's right. That's right. That shows respect. And those are the two examples I always give people when they talk. They ask me, how good was that team? Well, let me put it to you this way. Here's Jamel President's story, and here's the reaction of the opponent's fans. You guys were in a, on a different level um, before that, it had never happened, and it may never happen again. And you know what, you know, Shu, when I said that, I mean, like you said, I, I wasn't aware of the reactions I was going to get from that, but that's how I felt. 
That's how I felt as a team where we're playing and, and we had a, a great leader that prepared us to go into any battle. You know, we beat big teams, so it wasn't unlikely. I wasn't saying anything like out of the ordinary. You know, it's all about how we come to play. And we felt like even though we were mid-major, we, we knew we could play with any given talent, any given night. You know, you guys, I, and I can remember playing, and we obviously beat a number of big, big teams. Um, there were also some losses. Um, to big, big teams, um, which is nothing, you know, that's why they're great teams, Kentucky and some of the others. I remember the disappointments. I remember the wins, obviously. I mean, they were tremendous. But you also remember the disappointments. And that, that tells you, that measures a lot about the greatness of teams because you guys, and I felt it, were generally just despondent after losing to a Kentucky team, which is one of the great teams of all time with Rick Pitino and Mercer and uh, a number of great players in the in the finals of the Great Alaska Shootout after you had beaten Arizona State and beat uh, nationally ranked Stanford, where you hit like ten free throws. They they kept scoring to cut it to two. They had Brevin Knight and these guys, and then they kept fouling you of all people. And all you did was calmly kept sinking three throw after free throw. We end up winning eighty two seventy eight. So for sure, yeah. So I could go on and on. Yeah, about sure. you and that group. The last thing I want to last thing I want to say a story is that I remember we're in the gym in practice and whenever you would walk making a beeline to me, either I know the media want to talk or you have some type of stat to tell me, right? Yeah. So you're coming to me and you're like, "Hey Jamel, you know what? Just want to let you know you're 37, you know, 32 in a row. You're leading the country in free throw percentage." And I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. So I went back, look at it, and now, now I'm panicking. Because <laughs> I didn't know about I didn't know about that the whole time. So you, you know? never got nervous shooting free throws in the last two minutes to beat Stanford, but yet you felt a little pressure because you were the top free throw shooter in the nation. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. But see, there are guys that can handle that, and uh, there are guys that can't. Um, I had only been in the business probably 10 or 15 years when that happened. Um, but there are guys you know you can tell those, those numbers to. Sure. Because it, and it wasn't just you. It was the, from the top of the roster, which included the coaching staff, to the bottom. Um, there was an air about you guys, and there was a confidence. And not a cockiness, but a confidence. And I used to always tell people, our guys walk into the arena like they're the Chicago Bulls. And back in the 90s, right, that was the, the team with Michael Jordan. Um, y'all, y'all carried yourself in a way that I think intimidated people. And you remember this, Jamel, when teams came to our place, and then I want to ask you a story. Right. Uh, it wasn't a matter as, as if they were going to lose. It was a matter of how bad. Am I correct? Right. I knew it. Uh, Big William, who used to clean the facility, used to tell right. the team, they're shooting around, look, y'all got no shot tonight. <laughs> y'all might as well just eat right. lunch and just head, hit on the bus and go, right. take, you know, or, or take your whipping. Um, I, I remember we played Chattanooga at home, and it's crazy. Man, great Chattanooga teams, right? These were right. great Chattanooga teams. And you beat them. But we won 70 to 63. And I remember after the game, the reaction of the player, you guys in the locker room, was almost as if you had lost. <laughs> Right? Because you're one by seven. And everybody's going, what's wrong? Right. What's wrong? My expectations are that he gets better and he learns to be disciplined both mentally and physically in basketball. My expectation is for him to know basketball fundamentals 
and that all his drills and training come together in a basketball game seamlessly. My hope is that he brings skill, confidence, and discipline to the game and in life. Jamil's training sessions are very well run. Uh, they're done on a time basis, so you'll be working on individual skills or combining skills within a certain time frame. So you complete a certain number of those tasks within a certain time frame, uh, which again, I think carries over into everyday life and functioning throughout a school day, a work day, etc. Why am I interested in my kids' skills development? Um, I guess it would probably be because I want them to um, take those tools and those resources and continue throughout life, not only in their sports, but in every aspect, college, um, jobs. Raising a student athlete is just as important as being one. The story I have for you is our first Southern Conference game in 1998-99 season. I think we played Western Carolina at home. And the legend is before, during the handshakes at the center circle, you told one of the players from the opponent, uh, opposing team, Western Carolina, I don't know who has been the best team in this league up to this point, but I can tell you right now that we own it. Is there any truth to that rumor? Did you tell the opponent before the first SOCON game, hey, this is our league, everybody else is playing for second? Probably not no, no words, but I remember having a conversation like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, we had to, you know, we, this is our first time coming to the league. No one knew us and we had to set that tone. You know what I mean? I think as a, as a team, I thought I was that verbal leader within the court, within our practices, like us to get us going. So, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to set that tone and, and throw it out there and see if we can go and, and improve that. And we did, we went 16 and 0 in the conference. Yeah, you did. And uh, I remember the Southern conference tournament that year was in, um, not Asheville, it was in Greensboro. Greensboro, correct. And we went in, and I remember, and I tell people this, um, the philosophy that you guys had, it wasn't about winning the tournament. I think you felt like that was a foregone conclusion, which wasn't necessarily true because Appalachian State was very good, and so right. was Davidson. Right. But I remember a comment, I think it was Cedric Weber that made it, or Jim Yarbrough told me that Cedric made the comment, that the goal of – that team that year in 1999 was not just to win the league, but they, they mentioned that when we leave on Sunday with the trophy, we want the fans that came to this tournament to say that is the greatest Southern conference team we've ever seen. And, that, right. and that's just, that's, and, and you know what, the first two games, you won 80 to 49 and, and 94, 75 or 94, 76 in the second game. And it really was a foregone conclusion. Now you stumped your toe a little bit early on against, Appalachian State, um, and there's a whole story leading up to that the night before and everything with some of the guys. But, uh, um, you, you know, you, you were down, what, uh, 17 maybe? Easy. Am I correct? Easy. And you ended up winning it by 10s. You also it by 12. Davidson. Davidson. No, uh, Davidson got upset. Well, did we, we, were down, we were down a lot at so, Davidson too. Yeah, you're thinking of the regular season game at Davidson. Yes. I don't even, we know, down. Why I even know why I'm talking to the elephant and I'm trying well, to Well, <laughs> you know, we were, we were down 72-57 with a little under nine minutes remaining and went on to win 85-81. You started pressing. They couldn't handle it. 
you turned them over. Uh, everybody hit a bunch of big shots, big and somehow games. we escaped because yeah. if we lost, we were trailing 45-30 at halftime, 72-57 with seven or eight minutes remaining. It looked, and I remember thinking, well, you can't go undefeated. It was a good run, and then all of a sudden it was just this wave, and it was like Davidson didn't know what hit him. I didn't know what was hitting Davidson. It was inc- it was an incredible seven or eight minutes, to, particularly on the road in a I've hostile crowd because. Everybody was. Everybody had their sellouts when you guys came to town. It was their only sellout of the year, and that was their sellout. I've never seen Coach Chris act the way he act at halftime at, at at Davidson game. So how did he act? I mean, he was just. I mean, I think he, he said the f bomb a couple of times. He was just. He was pissed. You know, what I mean, he was, and he never got. I guess he was like, "This is it. I, I have to come out of character and get these guys going." And that's all, that's all we needed to see. You know what I mean? Because, you know, right. I, we came into that, that game such, such a big head. It wasn't expecting to win. We didn't know we had to really go in and make that happen. And, and at, coming out of that locker room, man, he, he, I mean, he, he, laid it, he laid it in us, and that's what really got us going. Well, I think, too, what we found out that night, you found out that night, the team found out, was there are teams in that league or any league that when you put their, your foot on the throat, sometimes they just give in. Davidson was not that type of team. You know, they weren't going to back down. They had the persona of their head coach. You were well coached. They played hard. And for 33 minutes, 32 minutes, they were the dominant team. But um, uh, 15 points was not enough that night. If they were up 30, they might have won. Instead, we got on the bus and went home. And from that point on, um, it was really a foregone conclusion as to what was going to happen. For sure. So, So, yes, you, you know, Again, a part of this uh, podcast is just getting the information from parents, and you know we all know your your, your son play uh, son Nick plays on an, on another level. But I want to talk about the early issue before college, and were you an athlete, and what are some of your you know situations that happens because you know <clears throat> in light years speaking, in order for to produce such a product, you have to have you know been through certain things and know what what ways to go. Like well, my son, I think my son is going. It's not because it's going to be talented. I think because of the direction and the things that I didn't do, I'm planning a whole lot better future for him. So take us back to, you know, high school, college, where you were a player and some of the things that, that happened, you know, prior to college. Yeah, you know, I, I was a high school athlete, which really doesn't say a lot. Um, baseball and football. I loved football. I loved baseball. Uh, I wasn't the most talented player, uh, obviously. Uh, my son has a lot more gifts than I do. Sure. I left there. I wanted to continue to play baseball. So I uh, had some small school offers and decided to go junior college because there was a part of me, Jamel, that didn't know if academically I was ready. Okay. Mm. Because in high school, I kind of skidded through, you know, I didn't right. I did what I had to do. I wasn't, right. uh, um, education wasn't on the front burner. Right. Uh, I went to college, junior college at Anderson College, played two years of baseball and learned to enjoy going to school and studying and doing those things. But it was there that I realized that I wasn't going to play this game professionally and I wasn't good enough. And I really wasn't good at all. I thought, Um, but I had a love for broadcasting. And so I decided I actually turned down some small school offers in Newberry and and some other places. I remember uh, being recruited by Newberry. They actually had me a job at the radio station, part-time job because I knew I wanted to be a broadcaster. I had already applied to South Carolina and been accepted to the school of journalism. And I, what I told Newberry, I said, look, I'm going to South Carolina. I'm not going to play baseball. I said, uh, 
you know, if I go to Newberry and play baseball and never become a broadcaster, I'll blame Newberry. <laughs> if I go to South Carolina, get a degree in journalism, the only person I can blame is myself. So I went with my heart, but while I was there in journalism, which by the way, Darius Rucker was in my classes and a number of the guys from Hootie and the Blowfish were the same age. I met a guy who worked in something called sports information. And uh, he told me what they did and I had never heard of it. And uh, it was crazy because I said, well, if they ever have a job come open at University of South Carolina for a student in the SID office, sports information department, I'd be interested. Well, he called me on a Saturday morning and said, you need to call Kerry Tharp uh, Monday. We've got an opening. I think you'd be great. So I called Kerry Tharp, who's now president of Darlington Motors Raceway. Wow. And um, Kerry said, well, come on in and interview. So I interviewed. And that day, uh, Kerry told me, he said, uh, I've, I've already interviewed a, another student, and I told him that's their job. He said, but I'll, I'll make a deal with you. If you don't hear from me tonight, you come in tomorrow and you start working. So back then, there weren't cell phones. I don't know if you even remember those days, but sure. there weren't cell phones. And I went back to my dorm at University of South Carolina. I told my roommate, who's, oh, by the way, his grandfather won the Masters, uh, Tim Picard, Henry Picard, who's from Charleston, won the 1938 Masters. But Timmy was my roommate. And I said, Timmy, we're unplugging the phone. He said, what? I said, yeah, we're unplugging the phone. The guy told me if I don't hear from him, I got a job. <laughs> so I, phone, I went to university, right. fell in love with sports information, worked there for two years, graduated, and was going to go to get my master's for the, with the Gamecocks as their graduate assistant in the sports information office. And, and back then, uh, Jamel, they had a house. The athletic department had a house for the male grad assistants. The football coaches lived there. It was a big house. And uh, the sports information person lived there. And I was going to be a roommate with Charlie Weiss, who a lot of people don't realize that was working for the Gamecocks at the time. But uh, in the meantime, the job came open at CFC. Someone asked me about it. This was 1990. I applied, got the job, and I decided not to go back to school and come to College of Charleston. But in terms of your original question, uh, I thought I was an athlete, but I really wasn't. But I wanted to stay around the game, right? right? Yeah. Because even though we do the stats and the box scores and the press releases, there's something about the event. There's something about the every year was a new year with college players because they rotate out every four years, sometimes five but it was the thrill of, of winning. You know, one of the things that in my 23 years in college athletics that made me so fortunate, and I see a lot of guys, Jamel, that get in this business and they do it and their teams never really succeed, mm. right? They might have a winning season here or there, but they never win championships. Mm. And I got to experience things that people only dream about, mm. okay? I mean, not only was I working 24-7, my team that I worked for was one of the best in the country. Wow. And so that made it so much fun in it. You felt the pressure, sure. even as a staff yeah. member, right? right. Uh, you felt the pressure. You wanted right. to get back to the NCAA tournament. You know, you right. wanted to beat uh, Carlos Arroyo and Rajah Bell, right? You remember that, right? I remember that. I tell that story that you felt the shake about that, that <clears throat> we went down to Florida. You know, mine, Carlos Arroyo and Rajah Bell played in the NBA for a couple of years. So we played them. No, we played for a lot of years. Right. In uh, Florida, and um, Shaky Rodriguez was the coach. Yeah. So I mean, they beat us down there in Florida yeah. National in regular season. You and, were thirteen and zero, and they upset you. Right. And scored <laughs> the floor. And and next day, I mean, the team that they just they gave me the business because Carlos Arroyo couldn't be handled like he couldn't handle. So I never forget it. 
We was playing him in the championship on a Saturday morning at 12 o'clock. Right. Yes, man. I went to bed at 7, 8 o'clock that night, Friday night. And Saturday morning was the best. I, I ain't up on the year, I ain't up in the picture in my ES in the ESPN that because that's where we was going to the dance. When we beat that's right. Them. You know what I mean? And you held so, them to 63 points. That's crazy. That's crazy. And and, and people don't, and we didn't realize it. I mean, you knew they were good, but that could have been the best backcourt in America. When that's you look true. at two guys, and I, I'd have to look it up, they played at least eight to ten years in the NBA. That's true. That's true. And uh, they had some other parts. You know, when Shaky Rodriguez came in. He took a lot of transfers. He did. He turned that program over in two years because even the year before they were very, very talented and they came in very. Remember, they came to the John Crest Arena real cocky, and uh, they were arrogant because they, they didn't were good. Out, and they they lost by a final score of eighty-one to sixty-two, and uh, it was really never a game. And uh, but they had great teams. Uh, Central Florida was very. I was about, good. I was about to that say Central Florida is really good. Who, who they upset that? us. At home, you remember that? Because Stacy, Stacy, Mr. Dunk. Stacy, I said, huh? Stacy, I said, Mr. Dunk. Yeah, Cedric missed the dunk. He had to yeah. break away to win the game, <laughs> and he slammed off the back iron, uh, down by one with wow. five seconds to go. There was a picture on the website showing him getting ready to dunk it. Wow. And we lost the game, and wow. uh, you know that's the other part <clears throat> about it is when you guys lost at home. I remember being in my office after the game. We didn't know how to react as a staff. Nobody, because we didn't, it was so odd. It was like, we just lost at home. It was like someone had just killed your firstborn child. Crazy. It was, we didn't know how to, we were, it was crazy. Right. And uh, that's just the difference. You know, that's the difference. In our timeout session today, we got Reverend Dallas H. Wilson. And your transition from New York to South Carolina, what was that embryo vision and, and how did that how did that occur? Did it happen when you got here in, in, in South Carolina or what happened prior to you leaving New York? No, what happened to me prior to leaving New York, um, a vision is really interesting. Again, biblically, let me share with that first and get an understanding of where I'm coming from. Uh, Habakkuk 2 talks about the vision. And you have to write the vision plainly so that people can read the vision and run with the vision. It's not just you having a vision and being able to articulate it verbally and the vision dies in the air, but it's to be able to write the vision down where people can look at it for eons, decades to come in the future and be able to replicate those same things. Uh, I want to be able to say in all honesty, I wish that it was an original idea. Uh, of me writing the vision for Midnight Basketball, of me writing the vision for our leadership camps, or some of the other things that we did when no one else in this town was doing anything like that. Now let's get back to the interview. You know, coming in, so you got the, got the job at the College of Charleston. Yeah. Um, you know, talk about you know, Coach Cress and his system, because I talked to Ben Betts the other night, and he talked about, you know, 30 years in, in experience in coaching, you know, some situation where some college coach may be in their their office, they're doing their own time. So Cress kept them in the video room. They, they met all the time, continuously meeting. What are some things that you learned from him as far as, you know, life lessons that you apply 
to your to your craft? Well, it, it's certainly things you think about. You hope you apply them more. Um, John had a way of making people feel important, right? John Crest would walk down the street, and I have had people tell me this that don't know John, but have only met him on the street. And he said, I met John Cress and he treated me like I was his best friend. Wow. Um, work ethic, I think, certainly sticks out. John used to invite me in, right? John wanted everyone to watch video. Remember Richard Jablonski? Uh, I was in there. It helped my broadcast. I mean, I would go in mm. and uh, mm. I would know, <laughs> you know, when the game started, exactly what to expect. You even told me, and I, I don't know if you remember this, there were times when you were playing other teams and you would, you, you could, they call out a play or something and you could tell the guy, Hey, you need to go over here. Right. Y'all were, it's so prepared. And that was what was shocking when other coaches came in and not to say that what Tom Herring did was wrong. What I'm trying to say is what John Crested was so unique right. and so good, but everything John did was how we, we were going to, you guys were going to stop the opponent, right? right? Everything on the board was, here's what this person does. And here's how we got to stop them. Whereas in the other, uh, scouting reports that I saw later on in my career, it was more so about what we did right. and not so right. much what they did. And John had you guys so prepared. John, in, in a sense, would try to scare you guys. All the time. He would put together the video clips. And I remember uh, before you got there, early on, we started, when the Cougars started the run, we still had Marion Busby and Thad was a freshman. We went to Centenary. And Centenary was 11-1 and one at home. And had they won, this was senior day, against the Cougars this Saturday afternoon, they would go to 12-1. and one. It would have been their best record, tying their best record in school history with Robert Parrish. I don't know if you know who Robert yep, Parrish, yep, yep. right? Robert Parrish played at Centenary. Celtics, yeah. And I remember the video clips because it was an afternoon game. And we went over the final uh, clips that morning in the hotel, and I was there. And I remember watching the video clips, and I'm thinking, we've, we've got no shot there's no way we can beat this team, right? And you've been there. You watch the video clips and you listen to John's scouting report and you're like, how in the world can we stop this team? Right. And I remember getting on the bus going, we, got, we have no shot today. Well, right. the final score was College of Charleston 100, Centenary 74. <laughs> it was 25 to 6 to open the game. <laughs> but I think that's what it took to prepare. And I learned about that um, from John, hard work, dedication, uh, remembering people's names, mm -hmm. right? John um, would meet so many people. One of my jobs, and you probably never knew this, you know, as we, as the Cougars began to win more and more, particularly at the NCAA tournament, when John, I remember, would, uh, he'd walk down the hall after the press conference, because your press conference only lasted so long at the NCAA tournament, then they would take you off the stage, but you could then open the locker room to the media and John sometimes would just get bombarded in the, in the hallway, head into the locker room, and he'd have, you know, 30, 40 media people from around the country. It was important for John to remember names. I learned early on that when I was with Coach, escorting him to the media, to and from media, was to keep a pen and, a, and some paper with me. Mm. Because as people introduced themselves, I would write their names mm. down. Because mm. it's not that John couldn't remember, because really John, more times than not, but there were so many people it was kind of my job to say, coach, this is Jamel, right? That, that was important to him. Got you. And, yeah. um, you know, I've, it's crazy because John's, uh, you know, he was a tough coach. But when I see John, I've used the word love. Love you, right? And it's the same thing I do with you guys. We're family. Right. People don't realize right. that we are family. Right. 
Right. And um, I learned a lot from everybody, but I learned a lot from you. I learned a lot from players. We all grow up and you realize I took the job at 23 years old. I was a wow. very young man. Wow. And so even when we met, I was not even in my late 20s yet. Wow. So you're constantly learning and experiencing things. And I, I kind of took something from everybody, in, including you guys. I mean, because anyone that was around that program that saw the hard work and saw the dedication, if you couldn't take that into your everyday life mm. and what you're trying to do, because mm. you, we, and, and what you do specifically, Jamel, you take sports and transform it into everyday life. What yeah. you do on, in, in your life affects what you do on the court or the baseball field and vice versa. Right. And so I'll learn from all of us. The relationships I cherish the most For sure. is you yeah. and Danny and Thad and Rodney and John and Greg Marshall. I mean, it's just, I mean, the memories, it, you just get a smile on your face. But well, the thing is, you know, we, and we appreciate because, you know, you never was showed a stiff thumb to us, even though you, was on staff. You know, sometimes people on staff can really stiff arm and not really be inclusive. And that, that's, you know, you stuck your head in there like you wanted to be a part of what we were about. And, and now that may go to, I didn't know, you know, your but age. Let me, just, let me just say this about that. A lot of people, because you guys, quite honestly, right, were celebrities. I'm not, you know, and, and not just in the city. People knew who the college was. You know, when you beat North Carolina and they're undefeated and ranked number three in the country, people started to know who you were. And I think some of our folks were younger and maybe a little intimidated. They didn't know. They mm. wanted to talk, right? Mm. But it's like meeting a, mm. a celebrity. Sometimes you want to say hello, but you don't know where the conversation is going to mm. go. But we were family. I, I, I'll never forget the locker rooms. I'll never forget the wins. The locker room after a W. It's uh, I never, I never thought about it that, that yeah. way. Yeah. <clears throat> so before we get into Nick, uh, yeah. so what, what's your, as a journalist, as a broadcaster, what was your biggest win in, in your career when you're, you know, broadcasting and um, how it does affect you today? Uh, I think it's because, And I say that, and I say that because, you know, I talked to Ben Best, and I looked at his career record. Like, coaches move on based on their careers, based on their right. winning percentage, right? So you being in broadcasting and in sports, did the college Charleston, you know, winning record percentage, you know, educate you, helped you? Where was your biggest wins? Because, like you said, it's, it's, it's hard to find material to talk about if you're not winning. Yeah, yeah. And people want well, to that. And, and we were nationally ranked and national this, and you were a top free throw shooter. And defensively every year we were top 10. I think it's two ways of looking at it. First of all, when you talk about as a broadcaster, um, there was nothing. First of all, a broadcaster's job, particularly in those days, because games weren't on TV. And I was the, I was the eyes and the ears and the mouth for everybody listening at home. It was my job to paint that picture right mm. and the picture has emotion you know i tell people all the time radio was a very special medium unlike television For and sure. i tell people tv you'll turn on your tv you'll let anybody in your house some nights you'll, some people will let jerry springer in their house right quote unquote but for radio, you've got to turn the dial on. Mm. You've got to want me in your living room. You've mm. got to want me in your home. And you've got to want me to sit down next to you on the couch. Mm. So I, I thought it as a, something that I had to do was to bring the, and I would tell people, 
basketball or baseball, whatever, there's an emotion in the game, right? Sure. Things don't always go great. And if I tell you everything that we do is great, then you're, I'm not going to have credibility. Mm-hmm. You're not going to know when things aren't going well. It was my job to bring credibility. Now, I was fortunate. 90% of the time, everything was great. It made it easy. But I wanted people to feel the emotion of the game. And I felt the emotion. Uh, there were great wins. But I, my first and foremost job was to describe the action as if people, I wanted people to be able to see the game. I would describe the arena, the, clo- the uniforms, the crowd, mm. what direction the teams were going. And at the end of the game, what was most important to me was that you heard exactly what happened. Sometimes as a broadcaster, you get so caught up in the emotion mm. that you don't describe the action simultaneously as, as it happened. And you go back to North Carolina. You know, the inbound pass comes into Cedric Weber. He dribbled down the right side, pulls up for a long three in the win. It's no good. There's Danny Johnson with the putback, and it's good. <laughs> Danny Johnson with the putback with one. So you've got to tell people they've wow. scored. Wow. How much time is left, right? Because wow. people don't know, is it over? Is wow. it over? not there they can't see the buzzer or hear the buzzer and you got it and you got it. so that was it that was great the other one to me was this Maryland and you were a big part of it you hit a bunch of free throws in the NCAA tournament I was working with uh Grinnell Scott yep there was pressure right there was pressure believe it or not because we had won NIT games and now the media is like well they got to win an NCAA and we go in and I remember you kept hitting free throws and with nine seconds left, we're up 75, 66 and we inbound the ball. And I'm still, you know, I'm like coach Kress, right? You're thinking, how can they come back with nine seconds remaining down nine, but you never think of it. Right. Right. And I think you had the ball and they didn't foul you and they let you dribble it out. And I'm pretty sure it was you. It may not have been, but I remember grabbing Grinnell by his neck and just wringing his neck and going, they're not going to foul him. We're down to five seconds. Four seconds, three, two. Can you say it, Charleston? The Cougars have won an NCAA tournament game as they beat Maryland. The thing I remember about that was Coach Williams after somebody mentioned to him about being upset. He goes, uh, you know, you lose, you're a 12, a five seed, they're a 12, they beat you. He goes, yeah, well, the last time I looked, they were ranked ahead of us in the AP poll. Because we were 16, they were 22. So you remember those, the list goes on and on. You weren't there and we went to Georgia Tech and wiped them out. Um, That was exciting. But – the other part of it with the broadcasting is the relationships to go back. Like you, you got in touch with me for sure. And it was just two friends. Let's get together. Let's chat. Let's talk about old times. Something I love to do with Rodney. And you know, you think of Thad, what do you think? That big smile, right? Thad's got right. the big smile and right. all the guys, AJ, all of them. It's you guys didn't have to allow me into your family, right? You didn't have to, you didn't have to make me a part of that team. But you did. For sure. And we didn't always love each other like any other family. I didn't always right. didn't say the, the right things on the radio, just like I didn't always discipline my children. But you were right. always honest, though. You know what I mean? You were always honest. And, and well, you, you I, it, you I hope you all – and I think you all knew that it's weird because, like, you could come up to me because you were honest with me and say, hey, shoot, man, my boys back home <laughs> said you, you, you got on me at the game. And I go, yeah, you know, and I was probably wrong, right? Because right. uh, – but that's family. Right, you right. never hesitated talking to us, talking to me, and I never hesitated talking to you. And um, those are just, I mean, it's one thing to be in the business. It's another thing to be a part of the family. And I think that's what we all are, man. What I always
Tony's hope is that he continues to respect people who can teach him and respect people in authority and yet have his own voice and have his own say and feel like he can make a difference. And we're really early in the, the season, but I feel like he is learning a lot of those great skills and we intend to be back. Raising a student athlete is just as important as being one. I'll piggyback off of that game. And here, here we are, we're playing Arizona. We're up mm-hmm. 10. We're, what, two minutes to go? And I'll tell people. It was people, late the second half. We were up. and I'll tell people this all the time. We went in overtime, and Anthony's got the ball. He calls flat, right? Okay. In a Rhode Island game, he calls flat. Anthony does what? Take to the basket. Right. Tennessee game, calls flat. What happened? Take to the basket, right? So here right. I am. I'm a sophomore on the left-hand side, and call flat. So really, I'm out the game because I'm watching the end results. And he made a move, pop, pop, and all I saw was orange thing coming towards me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit, right? right? And all I had to do was I, I caught it. Bibby was there. I saw fake. One dribble, I mean, it felt good when I left my hands. Hit up the back of the, no, hit the back of the room. Then we went in overtime. We lost in overtime. All right. But my thing is that, I mean, I'll take that shot tonight. But had I known, and I should have been ready, had I known I was getting that pass, it's because I was already conditioned to, but any player listen to this, you should always be ready. No matter what, always be ready. But in my mind, I wasn't ready to take that shot because I wasn't expecting to get the pass. Because you never know when that moment is coming. But that's a good point. But I remember the shot like it was yesterday, right? It was frozen in time. You were taking it. um, But honestly, any of the five guys on the floor, you wouldn't even Thad shooting a three at that situation. He might have hit it just knowing Thad, you know. So when you took the shot, that was your your patented – if I remember correctly, it was almost like your little – what about fifteen feet, maybe? Right above the, right in the arc, right in there, right above the elbow to arc. But that was your thing, man. You, you know, nobody could shoot a floater like you, like your baseline floater. Am I correct? No one sure. ever shot it like you, and that was just straight away. And I remember it going up, think, and the ball is just—you can almost see the rotation in slow motion, it's and crazy. you're just thinking, this is going to go in, and we're going to tie it back up. And then, of course, it didn't. They hit a couple of free throws, and who knew, right? that they would win the national championship. Crazy. Because I remember when they, they beat South Alabama in the first round. Right. With someone, because we had beaten Maryland and stayed afterwards and watched the game. And I remember telling somebody, this is great. Right. We're ranked 16th. They're ranked 15th. We'll just beat another ranked opponent. Right? That's right. just bring them on. Crazy. And, um, of course, they went on to win the national championship, which was uh, hey, things good happen, for them. Right? Yeah. So let's get into it. You know, and I remember – seeing a little Nick around the gym and coming, you know, coming around a lot, you know, being a parent and, you know, like you said, you played uh, when you were in high school, everybody have dreams, aspirations of playing the next level. Of course, that's, that's, that's no, uh, no question. Talk about when you first started understanding that, Hey, I'm going to have something here. I want to invest my time, my know-how into my kid, when did that start happening and what, what steps did you start taking to make those things happen? Well, I think, honestly, I had been around the game. And so even though I wasn't 
very talented. I knew what talent was, right? Because I love the game of baseball. I started being a part of college baseball in 1988, right? So I was involved with college baseball for 20 to 25 years, watching it, you know, 60, 70 times a year, and being around scouts and things. But I noticed early on, he was four years old. It was crazy, uh, Jamel. The first time I remember was he was barely big enough and walking and held a plastic bat. And there was a former Cincinnati Red Scout by the name of Steve Kring, who held a tryout camp or whatever at CFC. And uh, afterwards, he came to the house and, you know, just talking. And we invited him to dinner and he had dinner and and he was throwing the plastic ball to Nick and Nick was hitting it. And uh, it was shortly thereafter, when he was about four years old, we'd go in the yard and I'd throw in the ball. And I mean, he was, it was just natural, right? You you see young kids, right? uh, They're either awkward or they're not, right? Right. Some of them pick it up and it just goes, wow, they they look like they know what they're doing. And he just played. Uh, Nick just played. I thought the, uh, one of the things that I did, I learned early on uh, from a man who just passed away probably a month ago, uh, Roy Cromer, uh, who had three, four sons, Brandon, DT, uh, Brandon DT, Tripp, and Burke. And all four played baseball. Three of them played for the Gamecocks. And his last son, his youngest son, Brandon, actually played at Lexington High School in Columbia. And he signed with the Gamecocks, but he was a a late first-round pick, 31st, 32nd, whatever, from Lexington High School. He was their only first-round pick until Nick came along. And so he went pro. But DT, Burke, and uh, Tripp all played for the Gamecocks. Well, Tripp and DT also played Major League Baseball. They played in the big leagues. Wow. And um, uh, Brandon did not. Even though he was a first-round pick, he, he got as high as double or triple A. And then Burke is now a, a golf pro. But anyway, uh, long story short, I remember chatting with his father, Roy, who would come to all the games, obviously. And I said, it's crazy. You've got four boys, and three of them are have or will play for the Gamecocks and another who's going to be a high draft pick. How did, you know, he goes, I thought it was important because he played minor league baseball. Roy did. He said, I thought it was important to bring my kids to the ballpark. You could tell they had ability, but we felt like, I felt like it was important for them to see the game on a certain level. Mm -hmm. It's hard a lot of times, Jamel, for young men and women athletes to understand college athletics, if that's where they get to, and they've never seen it. They've never been around it. So I thought at an early age of Nick wanted to play baseball. And I tell people this story a lot. I used to bring him around the Cougars. Mm, he would go right. to practice. Wow. And I told people, I said, Nick would pick up things around these guys that I thought was important. I said, in order to play on a certain level, you need to see the game at a certain level. And I said, I realized even at a young age, as a bat boy, even at eight or nine years old, he might hear some things he probably shouldn't. <laughs> but he would pick up some skills baseball-wise. and. Um, and he did, you know, he was fortunate, you know, he got to watch Brett Gardner, right. And wow. um, Michael Kahn, who's still a dear friend of his, who pitched in the big leagues that played at the college of Charleston. He got to see those. I thought it was important to understand the game. Um, I wish there are times that I wish he would have understood it a little bit more. Right. Um, Cause as you know, and kids don't know, and even kids at Nick's age at 25 are still learning. It's not just about physical abilities, right? It's about the mental makeup, right? It's, it's, it's more that you can have the physical, but if you don't have the mental, those are the, those are the great ones. Those are the, and so, um, but he learned a lot and um, that was important, but he had talent, right? Cause eventually, look, I, I agree with people say you can do anything you want to do. If a child wants to play basketball, they can play basketball. Now, right. what level they play basketball on, 
really most of it is determined by God, right? Because you, you can, if you're a division one athlete or division two athlete, maybe you could work hard and become a division one athlete, but you're not going to, if your ceiling is high school, don't expect to play for the Kentucky Wildcats, right? right? That's right. just, and that's God. And so Nick had some gifted, he was gifted uh, with tremendous quickness for a catcher and arm strength and things of that nature and the ability to hit a baseball. And so you just kind of let him go, right? Let him go. And he's still learning the game. He's still, I watch him and I see where there's growth. And, um, but it's also exciting to have watched him from high school and then his early years of professional baseball to where he is today. And you see the growth. Well, let me ask you. Sometimes even as parents, if coaches, parents, all of us, you see the growth, you know where they need to be. They're getting closer. They're not there. And you wish there was some way you could, nudge them along, but it takes time, right? Well, let's talk about, the, you mentioned something about growth. <clears throat> and that's when I met, you know, Christmas in the gym. And sometimes, you know, you get these parents that they want to live vicariously through their kids, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they, you know, they, they force feed this thing, you know, into them. And the kids kind of really don't want that, right? Did you ever felt that, that <laughs> you feel that it was, because it's a fine line. <clears throat> it's a fine, yeah, fine line. line. It's a fine, fine line of, 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 of pressure because the kid don't know what they want to do. They don't know. <clears throat> we as parents, we have to show some type of initiative like, hey, look, this is what you're going to do because you have the talent to do it. Did you, ever, did you find a, a, a fork in the road where at some point you'd be like, you know what? Uh, this is not for him. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to focus and he's going to be a student and not going to, not going to force him to do X, Y, Z. Did you ever get into that situation? You know, I didn't. He wanted baseball from day one. Mm. When he was a young kid, when he was five, six years old, we had catcher's gear for him. He really wanted it. But I do look back and go, because here, here's the thing, as you know, there's no, I guess there are books, but there really is no book. There's no script that says, here's how to raise a child, particularly no. an athlete. Right. Particularly an athlete, and, and I'm not trying to sound arrogant here, but there is no book written on how to treat an athlete who has a skill level to be a first round draft, right? That's not you arrogant at all. They want to do. I was in sports. He loved sports. That's what we did. That's what he wanted to do. Look back now, I go, wow, I wish I would have done X, Y, Z, right? I wish I would have uh, put an emphasis on X, Y, Z, but you don't know, right? right? They're happy. He's loving it. Um, he's enjoying it. He's successful. You love being a part of it, right? As but a parent. You- for the audience, can you can you list a couple of those things that you, those loopholes thing that you wish you have initiated that you didn't, and and why do you say that you you know wish you did it? You know what happened? Right. To it? Well, there's more to life than there's a lot more to life than sports, and ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the folks that you deal with, their children will never get to a college. Well, probably college, but never get to a pro level, much less a first round draft pick. Yeah, right. Yeah, so. It, it's so important to do other things. Now, Nick did play tennis and some golf, and we'd go to the water parks and the beach and do things of that nature. But I wish there, as looking back now as a parent, you go, I wish I would have done more different things with him. Mm. And, and not it, it, maybe as I get older, I realize I should have done it just for myself, mm. right? Mm. My whole life was sports. Mm. Um, mm. I put my earpiece back in. I apologize. I just knocked it out. But 
Um, yeah, those are the things, you know, make, make them well-rounded. It's interesting. Um, and look, all good things come to an end. Absolutely. All good things come to an end on any level. You know, I know our good friend, you probably know him, Brett Gardner. You know, he, he's had a tremendous career with the New York Yankees. He's a great player. He'll be, you know, I tell people all the time, you know you've made it with the Yankees. When his career is over, he'll be invited back to the Yankees all-timers game. Wow. You, you know, you're on that level, you're something special. But he's facing some challenges this year because at 36, 37, whatever he is now, does his career continue, right? right. His option was not picked up by the Yankees as he worked out a deal for less money. About him, for him, it's not about money any longer. It's just about playing, doing what he wants. So at some point, though, he's going to sit back and farm and hunt and do things he loves to do. Um, but we all, I say we and, and Nick will be one. At some point, you go, I got to close that chapter. Right. Got to move on from sports. Right. So my thing is just make them, you know, make them well-rounded because I tell people all the time, um, if you think your child's going to play professional baseball or professional, whatever, it's not going to happen. And I don't mean to break people's hearts, right? but it's just not going to it's happen. It's not, but you, but people need to hear the reality of it because. And it's different than what you see on TV. Totally. Everybody thinks I loved baseball growing up. I was the biggest baseball fan. I loved it. And now I don't really enjoy watching it as much because you see it from a different angle, right? Right, right. You see right. it where your son is an athlete with an agent dealing with front office, dealing with general mm. managers, dealing with managers, and nothing against them, For right? Sure. Because their job is to win. If they don't win, they get fired. So right. um, it's, 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 it's not going to happen. I would say this. One of the things that I have learned, that I would do, and particularly with baseball. If your son is going to play baseball and, and, and gets drafted out of high school, if your son is not a first or second round pick, I would strongly suggest they go to college. Hmm. And the reason why I say that is it's hard to turn down the money these kids are being given, right? Nick really had no choice. I mean, in reality, he did have a choice. It was his decision. Right. But when you're a first round pick, I don't, I, like I told Nick, he didn't have life changing money. When he signed, he had life advancing money. He went from having nothing to basically he could buy a home and do things that kids at his age work up until their thirties to be able to get a home. He had already surpassed that. So you really can't turn that down. When in your life are you going to get that type of money? For sure. But here's the other part of that equation. And I tell people this, and there are 40 rounds in Major League Baseball. And you see kids get drafted in the 11th and 12th round. They're so excited. They want to play pro ball. And they jump at it. They sign for $500,000 or $700,000. And they go pro. And reality hits the minute you get to spring training that you're a nobody. Mm. And $700,000 is really not a lot of money. Think know. about it. Um, I tell people all the time, if you're not a first or second round pick, you have to prove to that organization right. that you can play Major League Baseball. The difference is if you're a first or second round pick, you have to prove to them that you're not mm. a Major League Baseball player. There's so many more opportunities than uh, most. So that's why I tell kids, go to college, because the lessons that they learn on their own in school, no one can teach them. And here, listen, Nick at 18 years old was thrown into a grown man's world. Right. He wasn't ready. He'll tell you. He, he was ready to go pro when he was in high school, but I think he made the comment, and he'll see this video. I think he made right. the comment to me a few years later. He goes, Dad, if I had to do it all over, I probably would have gone to school. Not, you know, it would have been hard to turn down his bonus, but, 
you know, let's, let's play. You learn. You, you learn so much. Let me play devil's advocate right quick, mm-hmm. though. Let's say a kid got some possibility. And I know the caveat you mentioned is the first and second round. That's the two options, right? Right. Let's say the third, let's say, let's say the third, the third round came into play. And it's a couple of more, you know, 100,000. Let's say, and I don't know if it, it's a max of different rounds, but let's say. It's and you're an still offer. talking close to a million dollars. Yes. Yes. I mean, let's <laughs> a kid turn it, turn it down, then go to college and, and get injured, get hurt. Is do they do, do agents, do they sign like a partial contract if they forego that contract? Cause I mean, the kids gotta be thinking about, about that too, man. Hey, yeah. if I go and play and I get hurt, I lost an opportunity of. Well, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. All right, so the way I was describing was the chances of playing Major League Baseball, right? There are two sides. There's the money and the obligations and the need for each individual, which is different. And then there's the, I want to be a major leaguer again. And I will put some third rounders Uh, in that same group. Got you. But monetarily, depending on the situation for the young man and the family, that could be life-changing money. So Correct. then you have to look at it from that standpoint rather than am I going to be – chances are if you're a fifth-round pick, you're not going to be a major leaguer. The right. numbers go down. I mean, think about that, right? right? right. But even first-rounders don't play major league baseball. Right. Um, a lot of them don't. And so um, – but if financially – because you don't get – because as you know, you can't have an agent. So there are, if once you go to college, it's, the door's closed. Now – when you sign a pro contract as Nick did the way it is with Nick and, and I don't know if it's all of them, but I, I would assume you know, Nick has, I think a, <clears throat> whenever he decides to go to school, I think they'll give him $120,000. I think is the number, something in that neighborhood to right. go to college. Right. The one thing you can't do is you can't take that. They, they were explaining to me that you can't in the off season, take a couple of classes and then they pay for it. And then four years later, you take a, uh, once you start, you've got four or five years to finish because they what they what they told me when Nick was going through the process. Major League Baseball, you meet with Major League Baseball, right. separate situation. They go over all this stuff, and they tell you that they were finding that some kids were signing up for classes, they were paying for it, and then the kids would drop out and get a full refund. Mm. But they were you know getting the money, but um, uh, yeah, it all depends on the situation. Seven hundred thousand dollars may be everything that. They need to get started in life and the family may need it. So those, there's a, two different ways. Look, I was looking at it more so of a, a growth and development. Right. It's hard at 18 years old to be thrown into a real man's world. For sure. Right? Because every when you went, had the, the, the parental support and education to go along with that. Like, yes. that's tough. Because when you're an 18-year-old and you get drafted, I don't care who you are, what round, you're going to what's called the, the GCL or the AZL, the Arizona League or the Gulf Coast League, which is basically a baseball boot camp for three or four months where you do nothing. You six days a week, especially when you play in Florida, like Nick did, he was a catcher. He was getting up at six, whatever in the morning, taking a van or whatever to the facility, working out all morning at hundred degree temperatures and then playing a 12 or one o'clock game every day and then coming home. And, you know, when he got, when he signed the three things that the, the scout for the Reds or excuse me for the Rays told him was three things don't nap when you get home because you want to get your rest at night, drink plenty of water and use your sunscreen. And I remember um, when Nick went to the GCL and he could probably sum this up better than I did, but they do have playoffs, the Gulf Coast mm-hmm. League. And I think if they won their last game, they were going to go to the playoffs. 
Well, they didn't want to go. These guys are ready to go home, right? Wow. Wow. And Nick said that they lost their last game and they were eliminated from the playoffs. And he said they were in the locker room after that game celebrating like they had won the World Series. They had all packed their cars. Right. They were ready to get out of town. It's hard. In our timeout session today, we got Reverend Dallas H. Wilson. Success to us is finding the will of God for your life. That's success. Um, I see you as being, and I want to come back to our topic. I see you as being successful. And I see you as being successful because you had uh, the ability to listen, the ability to hear, and the ability to trust. You know, when we said something, you, you listened to. You didn't say, well, Brother Dallas, I don't want to do that. Not one time. I can say to this audience that listens to you every day, not one time did you ever say anything back to me that was negative. Not one time. And and you stayed around me very close. You listened very carefully. Uh, you always had the ball game. The ball game, we couldn't give you that. We couldn't do anything with that. But we could put that ball game in a different sphere of influence. And that was very, very important. We had to do that academically. I wanted to say that before we... Now, let's get back to the interview. And that's, and that's what I wanted to ask you, too, as a parent. Because all the things you listed, you, you said, it's because Nick called you and, and confided in you about it. Yeah. From a mental standpoint, as a parent, going through all this high school rec, uh, recruiting, dealing with front agency, you know, mentally, how do, how is that, how do that affect you as a parent? Like, like. Because I know you want to be there for so your kids. You got to be positive. You got to give them confidence. So you got to absorb all that, right? Get rid of it, then replenish it with good stuff in order for your kid to keep yeah. going. Like, how do you deal with that? You, well, there's a fine line that's difficult because you want to be the positive reinforcement because a lot of times they feel like that's all they have, right? right? You, maybe their girlfriend and a couple of their friends. But at the same time, life isn't all roses, right? So you want to be kind of realistic. I've had to change my relationship with my son and it's really not his fault. It's mine. It goes back to, there's no book on how to be a parent of a first round pick and not just a first round pick. Let's just say wow. professional athlete. There's no wow. book. Wow. There's no way to do it. You know, uh, I was a part of Nick's life and part of his baseball and meeting with agents and meeting with teams and all this stuff. But what I have found really in the last two or three years is our relationship has to be outside of baseball. There are people that are in his life that need to have his baseball relationship. I don't bring up baseball. We recently spent a couple of days up in the mountains, played golf and stuff, and we never said the word baseball. That's interesting. Tony. And we have to do that because he can't, he can't have everyone. And, and I was guilty. Not that you think you're guilty. Not that you think you're hurting the situation. But every time we turned around, I was asking him about baseball. Mm. And him being respectful – he was trying to talk to me. And then you realize it can't be about baseball. Because mm. what happens if there's no baseball tomorrow? Am I going to stop loving him? Mm. Am I still going to stop being his dad? No. So I have to, and as hard as it is, because I love sports, I have to separate it. Um, I talk to my wife about it. Um, I've, I've, I've talked to his friends about it. But I can't, our relationship can't. And if he brings it up, like he just called me an hour and a half ago to give me news about his agent. In fact, he had called me yesterday and said, hey, I talked to this team. 
Um, I spoke to my agent and he told me that ex these, these couple of teens have called and are expressing interest. And then he called me today he, and he said, Hey, did I tell you about this team? And I think he did, but I couldn't remember. And he went over it again. We talked about some things during, as he brought it up, uh, some things with the, with the team he was with the Texas Rangers and how the spring training, they had the second round, some things that went on and, I, you know, I did actually ask him today, well, what do you, what do you, I asked him point blank, what do you think is keeping you out of the majors, right? What do you, what do you want to work on? And he explained to me what he felt he needed to do or continue to do, right? And uh, just, just because as a parent, you're interested, right? What, what are they thinking? It's not like you're trying to tell them what to do or be nosy. It's right. your love of care. Nobody's going to care for more than you do. And so I was asking him questions and he was telling me what he plans on doing. And, but then you got to just stop it. You got to go as much as I care and want to know, he's got to know. And I'm telling all parents, they got to know they can come to you and it isn't going to be about sports. It's not right. going to be about performance. Right. 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 Uh, I care more about them now. I've learned, I've had to learn, I've had to quote unquote grow up and learn that I care about him, his well being well after baseball and what kind of husband will he be? What kind of father um, will he continue to mature in, and become the man that I want him to be. Cause that's ultimately what matters, how people perceive you, how you treat people. And from that aspect, you know, I'm happy for them. Right. And, we always worry about our children. Right. And, 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 and what you saying that shoot, that's a tough situation to be in. Cause here's, here's why, you know, before as dads, our sons and, and kids, they depend on us. So we got a little bit more leverage over their decision-making and a little bit more leverage over our influence. But when they make more money than us, I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying that he, I don't know what your situation is, but when they're making their own money and right. their own decision and they're not as mature as they should be with that type of, you know, uh, resource, like, yeah, parenting becomes a problem because I can't say this is what I think you should do when he can do what he wants or she can Absolutely. Yes, sir. I agree 100%. I've told people that. They, you know, when your children are young, they depend on you for a number of things, but finances is certainly one of them. But when they get to a point at 18 years, Nick was 18 years old, and, he, and you know, he made more money than I did in a lifetime, right? It was stroke of a pen. So he didn't, he didn't need anyone. It's crazy. And, and, and that's what I tell people, you know, when you talk about money, money doesn't buy happiness. What does it buy? It buys freedom, right? Because you don't have to answer to people. Not that he was negative about it. Sure. He's been very fortunate. He's got a financial advisor and uh, his stepmom, Bonnie, uh, is the president of a financial institution. And many times they talk. Many times he's got questions about finance and different things. And he, I don't even know. He doesn't come to me, sure. right? He goes straight to her and he, he gets advice from her. And he's been, you know, he's, he's done really well. And I'm sure. proud of him on sure. that point, but it's true. Uh, money gives them the freedom to not depend on you and uh, or any parent. And, and, and I, I won't say it won't be tough. Build a relationship. It just makes parents harder to work at keeping a constant open line relationship because yeah. you know a kid at some point they can be like you know getting fed up with it. You know, like just I'm gonna. I don't feel like hearing this right now. I don't. I want to absolutely. Parents. You know what I mean. And so then we we still loving parents. We still want to communicate. So I, I know it's hard. They don't want to deal with that. They don't. Right. Right. And here's not a knock because what I've had to do, and I think you've probably done the same thing, is you think about your situation, right? When your parents called, 
And the first thing they start doing is asking questions. Right, right. And that's sometimes you just got to let them talk. And I found myself today even asking him a couple of questions. And I was like, stop it. Don't ask questions. Right. If he wants to talk, if he wants to share something, he'll share it. And you can't, uh, I think, and any parent, you can't, and I'm talking specifically with sports because that's what I know and that's what right. we do with. You can't make them feel like every time they bring up the topic that it's going to delve, you know, let them tell you what they want. Right. But at the same time, um, like we got to play golf and Nick's a really good golfer. Okay. He's like really good. And like, I'm the total opposite. Right. And I don't know how he puts up with me. It's no, really Jamel. It is so bad. You know, Terry Bryant, right? You know, yeah. Terry Bryant. Yeah. Yeah. So I need to get with Terry. You know, he's a golf pro. And I still think, yeah, Terry played uh, at Wando with me. He's the half-brother of Otto German. Right. He's a golf pro out at Charleston National. And I need to get with him. He'll laugh at me. But Nick tolerates how bad I am, which is, you know, says a lot. Because maybe when I'm not looking, he's la- I'm just bad. Right. And he's really good. But we spent time and just kind of hung out. And, uh, you know, so – it, but baseball comes up occasionally. I like to talk football, right? I love the NFL, right? Come on. You know, I love the Steelers. And he could care less. For sure. He don't care about the NFL. But you know who he loves is the Gamecocks football. But they're so bad, he doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> they're bad. Yeah. I heard – I've read some things and just don't know. Look, there's no right way or wrong way. I think even as parents, we have to talk to folks who've experienced it. Right. You know, I – even talking to you, even talking to really someone who I consider my closest mentor is Otto German, and mainly because of his age, right? My friends aren't as experienced as him. Mm-hmm. He has been through a lot with his kids. And so I throw things, I, I run things through him. Uh, you know, he's a spiritual man. He sees things in a, in a light that is uh, – certainly greater than mine. And I, I like to run things to him. So I think it's important as we get older is to depend on the people, you know, that have been through it, that you trust, sure. that will give you good information and also be willing to learn. Uh, I'm 54 years old now and it didn't hit me till I was 52, 53. That it's time not to talk baseball with your son. That's awesome. Because, um, and that's, and that's something I hope he feels that way. I hope he feels that way. And that's some things that people need to hear. Like that's, that's crucial information well, that people need to hear. Jamel will get into the rut. And it's not that a parent, like I look at Twitter all the time and see parents, right? And, and parents are always posting pictures of their child hitting a home run or videos, right? Everybody's this son. And I'm so proud of him. And he did this. And, he, and I'm thinking, are you only because we all did it. Right. Right. And I thought, and now as I get older and I have experience, and I say, are you sending the message that you're proud of them because they went three for four? Where deep down we know that you love mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. But how does your child take it? Mm-hmm. And I've had to realize that, and I see them, I go, oh, mm-hmm. it's wonderful they've done wonderful because you're proud and you want them to do well. But if they go 0 for 4, you're disappointed. Mm. Do, do, more importantly, do mm. they feel like you're disappointed? Right, right. And so right. those are the things, if I would advise parents, stay away from social media. Mm. It's not important. Your child's going to have fun and do what they want to do. Right. They're going to either go 3 for 4. They're going to be an All-American or whatever. They're going to be an All-State guy. Fine. If you go over 4 and you don't post anything, what's that saying? Yeah, well, and, and you don't mean it as a parent, right? right? It's, it doesn't matter if your child goes over 4. You love them. Right. But what does the child think? 
And so, look, I'm as guilty as anyone. Every That's time right. Nick got an accolade, I was just throwing it out there, right? That's what parents do. <laughs> right. But now that I look back, I go, you wonder if you're hurting a little more, right, than it right. really needs to be. Because now, do they feel the pressure? That's, and that's, I, I didn't, that's I didn't, I didn't saw a conference this year or whatever, right? And I made it last year. Right. He made a name for himself as a star for the College of Charleston basketball teams in the mid to late 90s. And now, Jermell President is doing what he can to make sure that the Charleston area kids have a chance to succeed on the court and in life. So I want to, you know, give some of that back to the community as well. Um, after college and after playing professionally, uh, I started the Day Foundation just to, to be that wealth of knowledge to the kids in the community and, and parents as well. College of Charleston Hall of Famer Jamel President said he saw a need for this while he was in school. So he founded the nonprofit Day Foundation. And its philosophy for success is based on what he calls his oatmeal recipe. Let's go and finish together. Basically, teaches the game of basketball. Focusing on skills, development, nutrition, and education. Not only SAT, ACT type stuff, but education for parents in how to navigate through the different levels of athletics. You know, Sue, you know, Oatmeal Recipe is something that the Day Foundation uh, designed. Um, you know, Rick Barry endorsed uh, Oatmeal right. Recipe. Um, and Oatmeal Recipe is skill development, nutrition, and education. And those three things can be applied to any sport, any career. Starting with skill development, um, how, because, you know, dealing with relationships, that's a skill. Like you said, the, the, the thing you said was Eddie Weber coming on the side and naming all the different things. You, have, as a broadcaster, that takes a skill. How important is skill development and how do you apply it, you know, to your everyday life? Yeah, skill development never stops, right? Right. It's like age. We all age. I mean, when you met me, I had hair. I was good looking. All that stuff, right? No, <laughs> everything continues to change. Skill development is just you got to continue to work, right? Sure. And I think the biggest skill is not what you do. Is what you do as a person. I think is the biggest skill. For sure. And I think the thing that you teach these these young men and women is that you know sports is great and it can be an avenue to great things in your life. It can open many doors and all that stuff. But ultimately, it's how you treat people. For sure. And how people perceive you, right? When they walk into a room, do they want to be with you, or do they want you to leave the room? Mm. And I think that's important. And I'm still learning. For sure. I've, I've got a wonderful wife, Bonnie. Sure. Who I look up to for so many reasons, um, but I wish I was like her. You know, she's sure. mature. That's awesome. She's much more mature than I am, that's awesome. and uh, she's a, a great person. Anyway, so that that that's from a skill standpoint. I could go on and on. How about uh, education? You know, well, it's everything. You know, education is everything. I, I would just figure out what you love and kind of pursue that angle. If you're talking about the actual nuts and bolts of going to class, you know, I, and I, I always give the example of, um, of my profession, which is media relations, now at MUSC, the greatest uh, research hospital in the world. Uh, I don't know the people in Charleston or even this, the Southeast understand how fortunate we are to have this institution in our midst because the, the health experts here are second to none. But media relations for them, media relations, broadcasting for the CFC, um, the thing I've always told kids you know, that want to get into business is, you know, be book smart, right? Understand what you need to do from a 
fundamental standpoint like you would teach on the basketball court, but broaden your horizon, take different studies, understand the world. The world just isn't about a round ball and a hoop and a baseball and a goalpost. Um, so make yourself well-rounded and then get experience. Hmm. Um, I've, I've often told kids, do you want to do this for a living? You want to do X, Y, Z for a living? Go to this person, tell them you're willing to work hard. It doesn't matter if you're just taking the trash out once a week. Get your foot in the door. Because I've always told people this. Um, I had a young lady that worked for me one time. She had a full job offer at a Southern Conference school. She had an internship at the SEC. I won't tell you your name. I won't tell you the schools. I'll tell you the SEC school is Florida. And she worked for me as a student assistant. She said, what do you think? I said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to be in the SEC? Is that your goal? She said, yeah. I said, go. Go to the SEC. I said, because once you get your foot in the door, it's harder to get it out. Mm. And so whatever it takes to get your foot in the door, you got to do it. And uh, that's part of education. For sure. And while you're there soaking in, it's just like uh, a baseball player. I think you gravitate to veterans because it's not about just what you do in terms of numbers and things of that nature, but also how do you how do you present yourself as a person? How do you present yourself as a ball player? There's a way to be a pro in everything you do. And for an athlete, gravitate to someone <clears throat> who's a part of the organization you are or the team that you are. Um, you had that responsibility for the younger kids coming in, right? Sure. You had a work ethic. For you know, sure. John Cress, is, is D, uh, DJ told us he dangled that carrot, which was playing time, right? You understood what it took to get what you needed to do to perform, perform at a high level, perform on a regular basis for John Cress. But it was also your responsibility to let the young people know that. So um, that's part of it as well. Continue to learn, continue to help others. So. Got you. And lastly, nutrition, especially with student athletes. How important is nutrition and performance in, in sleep? Oh, Lord. Who knew, right, when we were young, right. right? We would go to have a game. Even when I first met you, I was 27, 28. Game get over. We, You know, we didn't take many charter flights back to Charleston, right? right. We would right. bus home, get home 1 o'clock, and then you couldn't go to sleep, right? right. You just had a big win. And then you get up at 7 o'clock, you get five hours sleep, and you're going at it the next day. And I also felt, and as you know, and you were an athlete, I wasn't. We'd get on the bus, and it was just food, right? So the food – the one thing leaving athletics, I think that helped me, it may have saved my life from a health standpoint. So it's so important just for not only athletes, but I think in everyday life, you have to get to sleep. For sure. I work great with seven or eight hours of sleep. Nutrition, you've got to eat well, and then you need to exercise. Um, and I've, re I've exercised a lot of the last few years, but in the last year, I've really got into weightlifting. Nice. And nice. I just love it, man. Nice. Like, nothing I've ever done, and I continue to do it. And uh, it just starts my day. And uh, so I think, because you know this, when you're, when, when you get a good night's sleep, your mind's clear, you make better decisions. Right, right. Whether it's, because when you're tired, sometimes you eat the wrong things because it's easy and right. all that stuff. So yeah, I don't, I, nutrition, and it's important. Exercise, drink plenty of water. For sure. All that stuff, so. For sure. Well, shoot. We can talk forever. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I appreciate you taking time. You know, the podcast appreciates it. Appreciate it. And, you know, congratulate, you know, congratulations to you as a, as a dad, because, you know, we all are dads and, and all when our kids get certain levels. I mean, you know, it's a small percentage of, of dads that do what you do, you know, whether it's God get the talent or a limited ceiling, whatever you did it. And congratulations to you. And uh, just thank you for the relationship that we have and hopefully we can continue. Oh, I, I, you know, I love you yeah. and I love all the guys. But listen, God has been so good to me and my family. 
And part of that is the Cougars. You know, I not only was a part of it for 20 years, but I experienced some of the most wonderful moments. I used to tell people all the time, um, I saw some wins. You guys celebrated. And I told John Crest this one time. I said, Coach, it's crazy. I said, we beat this team to win a championship. You realize that the Chicago Bulls weren't any happier the night they won the NBA Finals and our kids won that SoCon. I said, because for most of them, this is their, right? And right. really, as it turned out for all y'all, that was your NBA championship. Of course, I think AJ played in a couple of them, but, you know, it's – it was wonderful being a part of, but even as a dad, my daughter is a, a straight A student, right? right. And she's doing really well. She's got a great part-time job. Um, she's waiting for me to call her back. <laughs> I also got to experience something that no parent never get to experience. Exactly. I got to see my son get a, his first major league hit. It's crazy. I mean, think about that. Oh, man. Right. And so yeah. I, it was a funny story because he's up to the plate. We're in Toronto. I'd flown to Toronto. I got the call the night before at like one o'clock. I was in the mountains of North Carolina. I had to drive through the night to Charleston, get back six o'clock, basically just repacked, got on a flight to Toronto. I hadn't had any sleep. Right. I drove. Right. Five, night. We get to Toronto. He plays a game. I don't think he got hit the first night. So the next night he played and he got to hit his first time up. And uh, we were sitting right behind the dugout. Awesome. I remember walking up in the crowd at Toronto. They knew, right? I guess some, you know, they, for some reason they knew and they were clapping. And I remember looking at one guy go, my son just got his first major. Wow. I'm going to go have a drink. You know, and it was just, wow. uh, those are the wonderful things I've experienced. So many great things. I've been blessed and n- none less than, than meeting you and being a part of your family. And I, you know, Charleston's lucky. I said, you know, to have them USC, they're also lucky to have a person like you in the community. They're looking out. You know what it takes, right? Because let's 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 talk about you real quick before we go. You know, a lot of people didn't give you a, a great chance. Could you do it academically at CFC? You nailed it. Everything mm-hmm. went well. You had a great career. Now you're passing it on uh, to the next generation. You're trying to make the kids of the Low Country make it better for them and give them better lives. And I'm proud of you, man. I appreciate that, Shu. Yes, sir. Appreciate that. I appreciate that for anything I can do uh, for you. Let me know. I appreciate that for calling that out about the whole, you know, about ruling out about the, you know, me graduating and doing that. You know, right. Goa, Goa manufacturing. We don't know the story. Coast Crest didn't have the scholarships left, as far as mm-hmm. monetary wise. Goa manufacturer, you know, put some money up to give my, to give me a scholarship so I can come to school. And the whole big thing was. You know, I remember meeting the table about me graduating and it was a big deal. And yeah, I knocked that out of the box and made it happen. Can I tell you, I don't, I remember when the Cougars signed Thaddeus, I think people were pretty excited, but I remember when they got you and I don't remember the whole story, but there were some, for some reason you weren't coming. You were thought to be a bigger fish than the Cougars could drop. Clemson Clemson and Wisconsin was going to sign me, but Terrell McIntyre with the Clemson and my dad my granddad died and my uh, uncle passed in the same week. So, I mean, not, not as a result, but that's right. what kind of. I just remember Greg Marshall or somebody came to me and said, hey, we're getting ready to sign your male president. We knew who you were. Everybody knew who you were. Sure. I was like, no, nah, he's not coming. He's not. And, and you know what? The first thing we talked about, the rich just got richer, right? We're like, <laughs> how do we deserve this? Right. Have more talent. Bring them on. Bring them on. Yeah, Bring sure. it on. The more the merrier. For sure. All right, buddy. I'm All going right. back to work. Appreciate you. Take care, brother. Love you. Love you too, buddy. Bye. Bye. That's our uh, segment um, interviewing our college collegiate athletes. 
coming up next on our premiere interview, we got um, Reverend Dallas Wilson, um, who was crucial for the men of basketball, crucial for um, putting a lot of a lot of kids out of com- out of this community into into schools um, that earn scholarships through men of basketball and traveling and and all those efforts from Agape Ministries. So um, we thank him for that. So tune in, listen to the stories from that, and um, hope you enjoy that as well. We'll be right back. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Jamel President and on Twitter at President Jamel. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast as I'll be bringing you a new interview every month.